Well, Moses and the snake on the pole again. Didn't we just hear that recently? You know, when I looked at the readings for Sunday, I knew that we had just gone over this thing not too long ago. Because when we got home that Sunday, Jill pulled this out of Alex's room and said, Don, you could have used this in the sermon. And I said, oh yeah, I forgot about this thing. You know, this prop is from when Alex was uh, Jafar in the uh, local production of Aladdin. And it's more of a villain's scepter kind of thing, but uh, it looks like it could be the, the staff that Moses raised in the wilderness with the snake on it, right? Anyway, I, I looked, and sure enough, it was the fourth Sunday in Lent that we heard the reading from John, along with uh, Numbers chapter 21, which is uh, the Old Testament account of where this thing shows up for the first time. Now, this may not be your concern. I mean, for some of you, I assume, you come to church and uh, whatever the readings are, that's what, the, well, that's what they are. You don't care. I could preach on the book of Jude from, for a year and you wouldn't say a thing. But I wonder why this reading comes up from John again so soon after Lent. And why on Holy Trinity Sunday? I know you're wondering why more kids are shooting each other at school. Why North Korea won't reason with the West and why more people aren't coming to church. I think about those two. This world racked with sin has its own seasons. Seasons of weather and also seasons and cycles of tragedy and joy. You know, they seem to come in waves. The church has its seasons too. And we're in the season of Pentecost now. And today is a feast day in that season. You know, kind of like... Uh, the Holy Nativity is a festival in the season of Christmas. Well, today is the Feast of the Holy Trinity. A feast. So, where's the food, you ask? Well, it's not exactly that kind of feast, but this service is a banquet, is it not? A celebration, a sumptuous repast, a treat, a jollification, a revel, a festivity, a blowout, a junket, a feast, a spread, a binge, a bash, a do, a nosh-up, a bean feast, a bun fight, a scoff, a slap-up meal, a tuck-in, just without the food. Are you feeling festive yet? Good, I, I hear a little activity out there. Well, feast or festival days in the church usually focus on Jesus or a person or a martyr or an event. But the Holy Trinity Sunday is a special day to celebrate doctrine. Today we celebrate what we believe. Now preachers have changed their approach to this over the years. For a long time it was about what God has done. What God has done for you and for me. And particularly with each, you know, what each person of the Trinity has done. For example, the Father created everything. The Son died. The Spirit helps. The Father punished. The Son redeemed. The Spirit enters in and dwells in the heart. And you could say, or at least I hope you could say, 
that you hear what God has done for you every Sunday, right? If you can't say that, either I haven't done my job or you haven't been listening. Either way, pastors have shifted to a more difficult task of trying to, I don't know, convey to you who God is rather than just what He's done. I say it's difficult because to take this approach means to to talk about God in a more holistic way than just facts about what He's done. For example, in this reading from Isaiah, this is, you got Yahweh, right? The Father. He's saying and He's doing things. And when He speaks, the whole house shakes. Now this is a vision that Isaiah is having or that God is granting him. And so it would appear God is in his throne room and perhaps there are doors to this room because when God the Father speaks, the whole house shakes and the doors rattle out of their thresholds. Now, I believe we don't really, we can't really appreciate the magnitude of this because our doors are different today. See, apparently God uses the old ancient type of doors that, uh, you know, they had like this groove or trench that, they, that the door sat in, in the shut position to keep it from opening and closing. It, it rested in there a little bit and to open the door you had to lift it up a little bit and then open it and swing it either outward or inward. See, but so, you know, the doors to his throne room are in the closed position and set down in these little trenches, but when he speaks, they rattle right out of there. So, what's that telling you? The Father speaks with, not not only is he loud, (laughs) his voice is loud, he speaks with authority. The angels announce that he's respected, esteemed, honored, revered, and sacred. He's what? Holy, very good. Say it with boldness and courage. He's holy. There you go. And notice he takes away sin before he sent Jesus, his son, to do that. Now this isn't to say that in Isaiah's day, Jesus isn't around. He is. Just not not yet in the way that he will be later on, a few hundred years later. But the father sends he sends Isaiah to tell Israel and the rest of the world that the Messiah is coming. Now what about Acts? Here we have all three persons mentioned in this sermon that Peter gives in Jerusalem. God performed, you know, God the Father performed mighty works and wonders through His Son, Jesus. The Father had a plan of salvation for all people and knew ahead of time what was going to happen to Jesus. He promised David, the king of Israel, for a time that he would raise a descendant from his bloodline, his family, who would be the ultimate king. He raised this ultimate king, Jesus from the dead, and he was killed by lawless men. You know, Peter speaks as if Jesus is lesser than the Father because the Father has Jesus doing all these things by his authority. You know, kind of like a dad tells his son to go do some errands for him. And this might be the case if it weren't for Jesus himself saying he is the Father. 
the Father and He are one. And you know, this was accepted without question early on when Christians were primarily slaves in the Roman Empire or oppressed citizens. But a couple hundred years later, and when Christianity was no longer banned, it became known to more and more of the philosopher types and the elite thinkers of their time who wrestled with the concept of three distinct persons being one God. And misunderstandings and false teachings and heresies spread along with the good news itself, and that's why we have the Christian creeds. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the the Athanasian Creed we spoke today. They were attempts to bring the church on earth back together in unity into a, a correct way of believing and thinking who God is. It was important then. It's still important because, you know, do your own research on various denominations that have Christian or Christ in their names and see what they say they believe about God and it ain't going to take you very long before you'll discover that you know, we don't all believe the same things about Jesus and the Trinity and the Spirit and whatnot. Some denominations won't even acknowledge the Trinity. Others reject the Scripture revealing that Christ atoned for the sin of the world when He died in our place on the cross. So the creeds help us from getting off track and making God into something strange. You know, a, 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 a beast made from gold perhaps or something that He's revealed Himself not to be. Which brings me to the Gospel reading from John. I asked earlier why this reading on Trinity Sunday. Well, if you look, you see all three persons there in those readings. The triune God. You got Jesus the rabbi. He's active, actively there speaking with Nicodemus. And, uh, you know, to Nicodemus, Jesus is, all he is is the, the rabbi come from God. But Jesus kind of intellectually slaps him about the face and tries to get this guy to think a little bit outside the box or outside the realm of what he can only see. The Spirit whom you must be born again of. Nicodemus doesn't understand. And it's interesting that Jesus doesn't really give us a whole lot of detail about the Holy Spirit. You know, he's not spoken of. of uh, Jesus doesn't explain how he works or if he says anything or uh, just what is he up to. But he's there. And the Father is spoken of too. The Father who so loved the world that he gave his Son in order that the world would be saved through him. And nestled in these verses is Jesus talking about the serpent which Moses lifted up in the wilderness. Easy to overlook on Holy Trinity Sunday. You know, when we're trying to take this sort of wide and broad view of, of our triune God all at once. But do any of you know what happened to this thing? Yeah, what, what happened to the, to the staff or the, the, with the snake on it that Moses lifted up in the wilderness? Right, so it, it, it served a purpose and then it disappeared for a while and then it's mentioned again a little later on in Scripture and you get to learn its final disposition. Does anybody know what that is? 
Second Kings chapter 18. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. In other words, a new king is in town. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, which was a pagan goddess statue. Uh, she was a goddess of fertility. You know, very popular in those days to have a, a god or a goddess of fertility, uh, which the true God, Yahweh, did not like at all because he was the God of all things, including fertility. He made man and woman and designed everything to work to make more people and invented marriage for the purpose of flourishing the planet and glorifying him. Anyway, Hezekiah busted down the, the, uh, the little uh, pagan goddess statues and he broke into pieces the serpent, the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan, which means something along the lines of a brazen thing, a mere piece of brass. Perhaps that's a takeaway from this Holy Trinity Sunday. It's hard for me to imagine any one of you worshiping the icons in this church, the statue of Jesus there, or the shiny brass crosses. On the other hand, perhaps we worship the church itself or our doctrine too much. You know, Lutherans have a reputation of being poor partners with other denominations over doctrine. We don't believe we're the only Christians or the true church, as some do, but we hold our theology as the best that anyone's got. You know, if you can show us something better, we'll be the first to change our doctrine, but that's never happened. And I may have lunch every month with the other Sherwood pastors, but when they partner together for worship-related activities, I can't pull you all into that. I can't present to our community the false picture that we all believe the same thing, because we don't. We don't all believe the same thing about the uniqueness of God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So we Lutherans tend to stay in our own camps just as the other denominations do, although sometimes at the risk, though, of idolizing what we have. But even the smattering of God's Word that's been prepared for us this day reassures us that despite our sin, God still takes away our guilt. He still atoned for your sin and mine through the Son. He still helps through the Spirit and creates faith in people to be saved and become his dear children and inherit everything. People are born on this earth every day and God still makes some to be reborn of the, st of the Spirit. God still loves. He always has. He always will. The Holy Trinity is more than just facts and events. He is love personified, personalized, for you. Amen.